0: Everybody, welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Time for a DC Spotlight for the week of February 13th, 2024. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. little surprised DC didn't put out there how to lose a guy Gardner in 10 days this week instead of last week. Uh, but overall, I thought, it was, I thought it was an okay week. No stinkers out there, really. Nothing really jumped out at me, but uh, I don't know. What did you think of the week overall, Rod? Uh
1: I enjoyed it. I, I I actually, I think I might have enjoyed this week a little bit more than you. I a lot of, if for no reason, that there's a lot more uh, interesting comic books out there than in weeks past, in my view. And I actually enjoyed reading the comics this week.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we'll chat about them. Uh, we're getting started a little, a little late. The joys of podcasting. We're having some technical difficulties. So apologies last week. We know the sound quality wasn't up to our, our usual standards, as if we have standards. But uh, yeah, hopefully we got all the bugs worked out. And uh, we'll go ahead and kick it off with uh, Sinister Sons, issue number one. Been teased, been promoted, been a long time coming. We've seen some backups in the Green Lantern book from Jeremy Adams. But uh, out in its own series now, 12-issue Maxi series, Peter J. Tomasi. Is the writer, David LaFuente, handles the art duties, Tamra Bonville on colors, Rob Lee on letters. I I don't know that I expected to like this or didn't expect to like this. I, I'm not the biggest fan of Super Suns. I think it's okay, you know, part of that being that I, I'm just not a big Damien guy. Um, but I gotta say, I really enjoyed this. I, I really enjoyed this. And and part of why I hadn't really been super excited about, it, I'd say, is the art by David LaFuente that we got in those those backups. Um, I just, you know, we talked about it at the time. It felt sort of cartoony. It felt a little bit juvenile. And I didn't know how well that would suit, you know, a book that I wanted to take a little more seriously, which is kind of an oxymoron anyway, right? Because it's focusing on kids, basically, you know, pre-teens, 10, 11 years old. But then at the same time, they're supposed to be the sons of villains, you know. They're supposed to be sinister, thus the title. So, uh, yeah, it just it feels a little awkward. It feels a little wonky for whatever reason, and I don't know if this is just me getting used to La Fuente's style in this story, or if there was another reason. But I thought the art in this issue was was fantastic. I thought it really worked. uh, you know, I thought the the kids came across as sort of cartoony evil, you know, like the way Wiley e. Coyote comes across as the bad guy or Yosemite Sam or, you know, any other kind of Looney Tunes villain. You know, you don't really expect them to tear people's heads off or, you know, shed blood or what have you. But they come across as as bad guys, you know, as as the sons of their fathers, um uh Sinestro and and Zorel respectively. So this was fun and just based on kind of the ego of these two kids, these two little kids and uh, their behavior, um, you kind of wonder how they could ever really be friends. Like the, the, they be friends the way Dr. Doom and uh, and Namor are friends, right? Like they never really trust each other, but they pal around. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so to speak. Um, but yeah, if you're watching this on YouTube, we've got the the scene up on the screen there where they meet for the first time. And it's just, yeah, it's completely over the top and fun. And at the end of the day, I think that's what this is about, right? Peter J. Tomasi is just writing a book that's fun and not going to take itself too seriously. And I think for that reason, if I approach it from that kind of perspective, I think the La Fuente art does work. So maybe I was a little premature in judging it previously. So I don't know. What would you think, Rocky?
1: I... uh I'm still a little bit uh, turned off by the by the art myself. I, I I would like more traditional house style. That's I wish it was more like Super Sons. I I'm still not accustomed to the art, but I I can't disagree with you on on the story. I did find myself enjoying this story. Yeah, I did. It was you know you clearly they're both villainous. You know, kids. They're juvenile delinquents and they're getting in trouble. Uh, what's a little bit odd to me is I think there's a mixture of there's a there's a overlap. Or conflicting tone because I think the tone in in the Neil Before Zod series, which I know is a different series, but it's Lorzod's Zod's parents, and and uh, we know that Lor Zod, and I, I won't give spoilers as to the rumors as to what might happen uh, regarding uh, over in Neil Before Neil uh, Before Zod series, but there's going to be a lot of serious uh, happen happenings in Lorzod's Zod's life, and. This feels like a little bit sort of a a wonky sort of very zany fun comic, which is at odds with the far more serious tone in Neil Before Zod, and I, for that matter, for that reason, I wish this was a little bit more serious here. And maybe uh, Peter Tomasi is going to make this more serious, but it's at odds with the art. Which I look at this art and I just think it's it's very zany to me. It, to me, it's it's an it's, it's an odd variation of of. Of, the, of what you want to come across in the writing versus artistically what it looks like to me. I'm not saying I can't get used to it. It's just, it is still a little bit jarring for me, but I have to say that I, Tomasi is winning me over with the story. And I kind of like the fact that these are two characters that are at odds. They're, they're obviously going to start off not liking each other. They're both very, uh, they both want to be leaders. Or Zod wants to rule this planet he comes across and, uh, Sin Sun wants to basically be the mafia leader of this planet. And they're clearly at odds. since Sun actually steals the rocket ship that Lorzad is in. It's kind of funny. So it's it's entertaining. It's entertaining. And so my criticism is me just getting getting over maybe the overlap with Neil before Zod. But quite frankly, I can see myself getting accustomed to this story. And and this, I think this is a lot of fun. I think those people that are fans of Super Sons will probably enjoy this.
0: Yeah, I I don't disagree, uh, with the art. It's kind of zany. Um, and yeah, you're, I mean, you're completely right. If it, if it was a little more of a house style, it would be more in keeping with what we've seen in Neil before Zod. So yeah, it doesn't, and that's not the first time DC's had this issue, even, even recently, right? Like we talked about how the tone in Batman and Robin, uh, from the first issue was so wildly different than the tone that we were getting in, um, the Batman versus Catwoman st- storyline, the Gotham, war it, it was, and they were taking place at the same time. It didn't make any sense. I guess don't think about it too hard and uh, just enjoy the comic for for what it is. Uh, okay. Up next, we have a Blue Beetle, number six. This is written by Josh Trujillo. Adriana Gutierrez is the artist. Will Quintana on colors, Lucas Catoni on letters. Uh, I'm liking what's happening here in terms of us getting some, um, some more background into the uh Javier Basalado, I guess is how you would say it. Basaldo. Um yeah, I think so, yeah. Who, yeah, who's who's basically the the bearer of the the blood scarab. Um and I I really appreciated that. It was it was interesting to see sort of the parallels and the differences between uh him and Jaime Reyes in terms of sort of being possessed in a way by these scarabs and, and them sort of having to be bent to the will of the scarab. Uh, Obviously Jaime's is a little more of an independent relationship. Javier apparently is, is basically remote controlled by this blood scarab and, and his personality is sort of subsumed by it. So that was an interesting idea made this uh, blood scarab character much more than a two dimensional villain. Um, so curious to see where that's going to lead. Uh, the only thing I'm not liking about blue beetle, I've, I've talked about this before. Um, as opposed to the first series where I felt like Gutierrez's art was really clean. This art feels like it's getting messier and messier as it goes along. I don't know if that's just a, uh, a, a byproduct of him trying to stay on schedule. Cause I also noticed that the backgrounds in this issue were very, very light. Oftentimes there were no backgrounds, just solid colors. Um, but there's again that constant ink splash over th- every page and it just makes it feel dirty and messy. And I- I'm just not a fan of it. I-, I don't like just the art in this book would be the visuals in this book. I should say would be greatly improved. Just take away the, the, the black ink spatter. Just take it away. Just remove it. Uh, because it's not like these guys are working in, you know, on, on actual. Bristol boards. This is all being done digitally, so they're adding another layer where it's just ink splatter. And I, I, yeah, I question whether or not that's a that's a good idea. I also question what, like, I don't get me wrong, people do it in real life, right? Like, you get your brush and you kind of flick the bristles or whatever, but you you have to be really careful that it doesn't go and cover something that's you know really important or what have you. Um, but it's it's so it's so much easier to do it digitally. So it's almost like people are like, well, it's so easy to do. Why, why don't I just do it? And it adds this like greediness to the art. It just makes it look messy in my mind. And it's just not necessary. It's just not necessary. It doesn't work for me. And I don't, I don't like it. I mean, I've, I've said that a hundred times, but, uh, but nobody cares what I think, I guess, <laughs> is when it comes to the artists. But anyway, what do you think of the story?
1: I actually didn't mind the story. I thought the story was a little bit sir. Cer- uh, it, it caught me by surprise a little bit because one of the uh, one of the internal struggles that, that uh, Jaime Reyes has was whether or not to use lethal force, and he goes out of his way to not to not use lethal force in this issue. Unfortunately, he comes across an unsurmountable obstacle. They actually the Keja do I'm, I'm saying that wrong, but the, the the actual suit that Blue Beetle has uh, has a mind actually takes over and has a mind of its own, and actually ends up using utilizing what appears to be lethal force against the blood scare. Because, and it's really tragic because in the midst of their fight, it's, it becomes clear that the blood scarab is actually taking control of Javier, the, the the, the, the I guess, the innocent human who has had his mind overwhelmed by the, by the uh, forces of the, by, by the psychic presence of the, of the blood scarab, uh, which is the ancient pharaoh of Egypt. Uh, and, and so it's, it's sort of tragic in that, in that respect. And, uh, yeah, so I thought I thought it worked kind of well it, because I wasn't aware, and this this might be new, but there's there's actually now a conflict between who controls the suit. I mean, the blue beetle was so concerned about potentially Jaime Reyes dying that the, the beetle suit itself took took control because it didn't trust Jaime Reyes' instincts uh, and, and didn't believe that lethal force could be avoided, and that's very interesting there and also very tragic because it shows a disconnect between the, the, soup, uh, the soup and its communication with, uh, with uh, Jaime. So that, that's, in, that's very interesting. I agree with you with the art. I'll be very blunt, uh, I, there, were, there are entire sequences here where I'll be honest, I'm on a page right now where I don't know what the hell happened. There's a page where the, the green beetle, whose name I forget, I don't know what's happening. There's a, there's a blowing ball behind her, I don't know why. I don't know what's happening. I, I literally don't know. I can't. I don't know what's happening on the page. It's not being described what's happening. There are, there are battle sequences where I don't know what happened and who the characters are. And there's the color work I think is wonky. I, I think they got the color work of Starfire wrong. They, they you know, it didn't quite feel like Starfire's traditional sort of colors. I'm being it might sound like I'm being picky here and I am being picky, it didn't work for me uh, this battle sequence. This this could have been done better. I don't I don't mind the splash, like the the, the blood splash or the, the blotchiness that bothers you. It's that's not I can get over that. In fact, it even gives the illusion of blood, the blotchiness, and, and I think it arguably even enhances some of the scenes. I'm <laughs> like you it feels very different. To me, it's just the overall colors just don't seem to mix well. Although I will say colors Will Quintana has his work cut out for him because and you're dealing with all these colors, the beetles and everything else, and you're and they're battling amongst each other. I can understand that he's challenged by it, but it wasn't just quite, a, it wasn't quite up to task for me. So, but I, nonetheless, from a story perspective, overall, I was pleased with this. And I like the moral struggle that Jaime was left with. and particular, his failure at the end it, to, to control the suit, the blue beetle suit, and un, unfortunately, the, the lethal force that was used at the end of it end of this, there's a tragedy to this that Javier is, it's probably gonna stay with the character for quite some time. So I thought it was well written, uh despite maybe some pickups on the art.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what what fallout there might be from this because you're right. That that was, I mean Kaji Da and Jaime have always gotten along and to have Kaji just take over. Um and again, it just r- drawing those parallels between him and Javier, very very interesting. Great work by by Josh Trujillo. And I know uh, you know again I, I I think Gutierrez is probably it's probably just a time thing. Like he just he doesn't have time to put in backgrounds um because he's trying to stay on schedule. And so he's looking to add texture and layer in some way. And it's probably real easy just to use that ink splatter. But yeah, I, I don't think it I don't think it works as well as maybe it could. Uh all right. Up next we have Batman and Robin number six. This is from writer Joshua Williamson. Nicola Samezia handles the art, Rex Locus on colors, Steve Wands on letters. Interesting story here. Um, kind of follows up with what we saw last issue, where at the end, this, this kid who's on Damien's soccer team, Zach, uh, there was some, some hints given that he was, uh, Mr. Zaz's son. And you're like, what? How can that be? What sort of retcon is going on now? Don't worry, everybody. Nobody was crazy enough to sleep with Mr. Zaz and have his kid. Uh, it turns out, what it had this kid this kid's had it rough. Uh you you almost feel bad for him as much as he's been kind of a jerk and somebody's trained him to be a very potent fighter and and, and deadly assassin. And of course uh Damien thinks it's it's Shush or what was her name, Miss Mistress Payne or or whatever, the the same woman that um Mr. Harsh Mr. Harsh there, there it is uh the same woman that trained him you know back in the day when he was uh, training to be a, a league of Assassins. but what happened was Mr. Zaz killed this kid's parents and this kid kind of lost it he had a psychotic break and he convinced himself in his mind that the only reason that Mr. Zaz would kill his parents is because Mr. Zaz loved the kid so much that he wanted the kid for himself wanted the kid to be his son wanted Zach to be his son. So that's how Zach sort of dealt with the trauma of Mr. Zaz murder and repair, like super tragic, like really, really pretty heavy stuff from, from Joshua Wimson. So uh, I did appreciate that this story didn't drag on too long in terms of the, the idea of Mr. Zaz having a son, <laughs> but we're still uh, exploring the mystery of is principal stone, mistress harsh. Is she, um, this this woman that trained uh, Damien back in the day, I guess we'll have to wait and see. So that's still being explored. Uh, there's also at the end a very uh, sort of tender moment between Bruce and Damien that I thought, again, was handled really, really well. Um, you know, I mentioned just a few minutes ago about kind of the uneven tone when you talk about Batman and Robin and how Bruce and Damien from the first issue were sort of seemed like they were in a good place Relationship-wise, which was at odds with what we were seeing in uh, in Batman, uh, Catwoman, Gotham, or what have you, I, I'm fine with just being like, okay, that's whatever it was. We, you know, Gotham didn't didn't really work for either of us. Um, but what is working is Williamson's emotional exploration of of the relationship between father and son. Like, they've never felt more like father and son to me than in this issue. Um, You know, there have been moments here or there, but this is definitely up there with them. You know, too many times, especially from in, in uh, granted, I haven't read all the Grant Morrison run, but, you know, what I have read of it so often, it it felt like two coworkers, two coworkers who didn't even really like each other, uh, you know, the way they would speak to each other, just only saying what was absolutely necessary. Uh, there was like a, a barrier or a standoffishness between them, a coldness. And you don't feel that at all. You feel actually like the warmth of uh, a father and son relationship. I really like that. It's it's softening Damien up a little bit and softening Bruce up for that matter. And I think these characters need that, you know. Um, Damien needs it because too often he comes across as a petulant jerk. And Batman needs it because he comes off too often, especially in recent years. We've talked so often about the power creep of Batman as this like cold – Inhuman crime-fighting monster machine guy who doesn't really care about anything other than fighting crime, and it makes him feel like a very two-dimensional character. Uh, this is adding some emotional depth to the character. Now, whether that will carry over at all to when they're uh, you know wearing their costumes, we'll have to wait and see, uh, or whether it'll carry beyond the pages of the series, we'll have to wait and see. But I've I've been pleasantly surprised by the last couple issues of, uh, of Batman and Robin. Um, and also the Nicola Samia art. Like when I think of Samia, I go back and I think about that Future State Gotham title, and how heavily manga influenced it was. With really heavy line weights, and it was black and white, and it just, it just. What did we say? I mean, it wasn't quite to the level of uh, Milo uh where we felt like his artwork looked like um, it came out of the Doug cartoon. But Samia was sort of in that realm. Um, I don't know if he's purposely trying to use, you know, more of a traditional s- superhero style, but I was pretty impressed with the art here as well. I thought the art worked really, really well. I really liked, um, his choices too, with camera angles and varying, uh, foreground and background and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I was, I was really impressed. I, I think this is probably my favorite issue of the series so far. What'd you think, Rocky?
1: Uh, wow. Uh, yeah, and you never really mentioned uh, uh, the the surprise ending. Uh, it was great to see Flatline show up. Oh yeah, and that's, yeah. So that, that's why that's why I enjoyed it uh, because uh, Flatline was one of my favorite characters from the from the Robin series that Williamson did such a good job on in terms of uh, when they were that that fighting tournament and you know I guess technically I mean I I think they're still boyfriend and girl boyfriend and girlfriend. I don't think they technically broke up, but. Uh, I like that. I, I like the character work. I, I don't need to repeat again what you said. A good character between Bruce and, and Damien. Nice to see Bruce. I mean, Damien actually is a talented artist. He's, uh, you know, he's a decent comic book artist. Uh, and, uh, he you know, I guess uh, Damien prefers manga over American style comic books, too. Uh, I mean, apparently he's not alone. But it, uh, in any event, uh, we can blame Dean for the lack of sales in comic books, if, if, that, if that's what's happening. And maybe that's happening in the DC universe as well. I don't know. But in any event, uh, I, I thought it was I thought it was well done. The, the, the story between Vic, uh, Victor Zsasz being the sort of uh, he obviously wasn't the father of young Zachary, but, uh, you know, he being the jerk that he is, he, uh, you know, he, he made, made made it worse. And per, per young Zach is probably a future in a future inmate at Arkham Asylum because of it. Mistress Harsh, we're still left with that mystery at the end, is in fact Mistress Harsh. Uh, pardon me, is Principal Stone Mistress Harsh? Uh, and we don't know, but more specifically, even if Principal Stone is Mistress Harsh, so what? She hasn't appeared to have done anything wrong yet, even if she is. Uh, which is interesting because maybe she's on her path a path of redemption and she just wants to, you know, she enjoys being an ordinary high school principal as opposed to, you know, a mistress working for Talia Algal which probably has a shelf life of a, only a couple of weeks. Uh, so um, it was actually, uh, it's interesting. I, I like what Williamson is doing here. He's actually slowly building a story and I think he's doing a, a decent enough job of it. And this this is definitely one of the better issues since this series began. So, yeah, I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. So yeah, definitely in, in, in agreement there. So uh let's move on. Next up we have outsiders. Number four, it's written by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, Robert Carey on art, Valentina Tadio on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. It's been a little bit of an up and down series for us. Um You know, I, I think you've struggled not to uh, or struggled to with comparisons to the authority, which obviously it's, uh it's harkening back to, in, in to some extent. Um so yeah, this was again. I thought a really really strong issue. Uh, I'll let you uh, talk about the story first. What do you think?
1: I I actually think that this should have been either the first issue or the second issue. The first issue sort of introduced us the idea that the planetary concept is back, but in the context of the DC universe. What I enjoyed about this fourth issue, and I think arguably this is this this is actually a, a nice one shot issue, and it introduces us to a character called Jenny Crisis. Now. Jenny, uh, Jenny Crisis is the is the new spirit of the twenty first century. Now, for fans of the Authority and fans of plan, plans of uh, the Authority in particular, Jenny Sparks was the spirit of the twentieth century, and then following that, a character by the name of Jenny Quantum was the spirit of the twenty first century. Now. We don't know what happened with Jenny Quantum, but Jenny Quantum has been replaced by Jenny Crisis, the spirit of the 21st century. So in the context of the DC universe, a spirit of uh, every century, at the at the strike of midnight, at the beginning of every century, century babies are born, and one of them becomes the spirit of that century, embody, in essentially embodying all of the aspects and culture and technological developments of that particular century. And these century ba- uh, this the spirit is very, very powerful. Now, what, uh, what's interesting about what, uh, uh, pardon me, what, uh, Kelly and Lansing do here is they, they make Ginny crisis. Uh, they, they imbue her with, uh, I don't know. She, she's she's not flaws of character, but for the most part, she, she's kind of an aimless wanderer and, whenever she has got a lot of mood swings and when she has a mood swing and she has a bad day, the world has a bad day. When she's happy, the world is happy. And, and I don't know how I, I got mixed feelings about that because my recollection of Jenny, Jenny Sparks, and even Jenny Quantum is they were a reflection of the world, not the other way around. Like, I mean, if, I mean, if the world was having a bad day, that, that, that's a reflection that, that reflected on Jenny Jenny uh, Spark, you know, Jenny Sparks or Jenny Quantum, but this is the other way around where now Jenny Crisis, and what a perfect name. I love the name Jenny Crisis because, you know, if you're a DC fan, you gotta, you're gotta all good for a good crisis. And uh, so now the, the, it, it does bother me a little bit that at the end here, I mean, the outsiders, Batwoman and the drummer and Bat, essentially when they go on the hunt. They want to recruit Jenny Crisis to be part of their team, but they're also concerned that they have to apprehend her because she's a potential danger. And the only thing that doesn't quite make sense to me is the entire issue establishes that Jenny crisis is a mess. She's moody when she has a bad day or she has a bad relationship. She's I think she's, I don't know. Her sexuality is probably open-ended, but she, in this particular issue, she falls in love with another woman. And this woman breaks up with her and she's her, because of her heartache of uh, uh, the world, you know, it's implied that a lot of people around the world died because of all these storms and all these terrible things that happened in the world because Jenny crisis has a bad day. And yet at the end, the drummer concludes without much evidence that Jenny crisis is an okay person and kind of lets her go. And Batwing says, can we have your email so we can contact you whenever we need you to join our team. And, and it's sort of left like that. So I am a little bit concerned how nonchalant they were about it. You know I mean? This is kind of a, I mean, I'm not sure if I would be comfortable just letting this this woman who's essentially directionless and not particularly prone to making great decisions uh, sort of be on her own. But, but beyond that, I love the potential of this Jenny crisis. She's a new character. Interesting. This is the best issue, I think, so far and the most straightforward. And it tells a decent story. And I want to see more of Jenny crisis. So what do you think?
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh you know, and, and I get it. They're very meta, you know, and in, in terms of t- talking about the generation that's, you know, currently coming of age and all the sort of the pushback. It's interesting, right? Like, there's a couple of generations in between. uh You know, g- generation the forgotten generation that we're a part of. You know, Generation X or whatever. Then you have Generation Z. And then you have millennials. And and before our generation, you had kind of the baby boomers, and and it's it's interesting because you have the the boomers, and then you have gener uh, the millennials. And they're the ones that really are kind of at odds with, with each other because the, the boomers will, you know, talk about, well, how come you can't do things the way we did? You know, we went to college, we bought houses, we raised families. You know, here you guys are in your late 30s or, or entering your 30s or what have you, and you're still living at home with your parents and why don't you go get a job and blah, blah, blah. And they're just, they're just, there's a disconnect there. They just don't understand that the economy and, and the way the system is set up just isn't the way that it used to be. Back then, it's not as easy to do things the you know the way that it used to be in terms of you know housing's more expensive and it's just it's just a different world now. And so you know I find that to be fascinating. And in a lot of ways, that's what this Jenny crisis is representing, right? Like the the, the difference, the the trauma that that you know the youth of today is having to deal with and and what have you. So yeah, it's kind of interesting in, in a lot of ways. And uh, I think Jenny crisis is an interesting character, like you mentioned. There are still some issues with her. I think, Um, you know, like you mentioned, uh, there's some issues with letting her run free. But at the same time, it's like, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? She's supposed to be the embodiment of the new century, born at the moment the new century started. And yet she has this, you know, crippling anxiety when she was young. She couldn't really go outside or be around other people at all. It's like, what is that? Um, So, yeah, interesting the choices that, she's being forced to make it. And, and I, while I agree with you, the outsider's like, how can you let this woman just, you know, she's such a danger to the entire planet. How can you just let her be out there on her own? Like, well, what, what other choice do they have really? You know, like you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you try to capture her, you try to force her to do what she doesn't want to do. You know, I mean, what do you just put a bullet in her head? Like, don't, we don't even know. I mean, she's so powerful. We don't even know if that would, if that would even really work. So again, really interesting story, really interesting character for Lansing and Kelly to uh, introduce here because there's so much potential for uh, what she can be as a character. Um, And yeah. So, you know, from that perspective, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, All right. Up next, we have Batman city of madness. Number three, this is uh, written and drawn by Christian Ward letters by Hassan Atman Alha. Uh, Black Label series exploring the what do they call it the Gotham from below. I really got some um, some vibes of um, you know the Batman who laughs and and what have you in this. If, if <laughs> even though that character and uh, Scott Snyder's story about that character, I, I feel like it hasn't been around that long. It's almost like this is homaging that already. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, but anyway, what did you think of this?
1: I thought that what's interesting about this is that this has the vibe to me of having almost a, a. This is this is actually another origin for the Joker. Now this is a black label series, and this isn't. I'm assuming that this isn't mainstream DCU because this ends implying that the that I mean essentially the Batman. Uh, uh, let's put it this way: Gotham City is above Gotham. Above is different than Gotham below because Gotham below. Has copies of all the citizens of Gotham above. And uh, the son, Ark of Amadeus Arkham, is Arthur Arkham. And a copy of Arthur Arkham is in Gotham Below. And he is the, um, um, uh, this copy of Ark of Arthur Arkham in Gotham Below finds himself, it's implied that he eventually finds, he, he, Survives the this the the killing of all the villains in the Gotham below, and be, essentially lives on to become the Joker in in Gotham above. That's the implication in the ending, or it's it's hinted that that's a possibility, which I thought was very interesting. It it sort of links that uh, Doctor Ar- Amadeus Arkham has a beautiful wife, and one daughter, and he's got one son named Arthur Arkham. Arthur Arkham witnesses the horrible killing of his wife and his, uh, the horrible killing of his mother and his sister. And Dr. Arkham, Amadeus Arkham, tries to cure his son Arthur, but he makes a deal with the occult and uh, with devilish forces. And the devilish forces create a copy of Arthur that, uh, and Arthur, the, the real Arthur, of course, could strike down to the Gotham below where he is ultimate, where he becomes this Batman. Below this, the Batman from below, and and then the opposite of Batman the got the, the the copy of, of Arthur Arkham becomes the Joker of Gotham above. That's how I read it. So it's 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 interesting, and um, it shows how Doctor Arkham Doctor Arkham took revenge on the serial killer that that killed his wife and daughter by uh, electrocuting him, and. Uh, all of the copies of Batman's enemies were killed by Arthur, by the real Arthur Arkham, who became the Batman from below. He killed all of them. Uh, and the last one that did die was actually Two-Face, who ended, ended up betraying all the other villains that got from below and, and helping out Batman, our Batman who's down there. And I, I thought it was well done. I, I was surprised that it ended, uh, ended as it did. Uh, but I, I thought it was well done. I thought it was... Uh, um, of all the potential origins of the Joker, because this is a potential origin of the Joker. That, isn't it interesting that uh, essentially a copy of The Sun, or, or a copy of The Sun of Amadeus Arkham from Gotham Below ultimately ends up becoming the Joker. I mean, it's, <laughs> Christian Ward is definitely, uh, uh, he's taking outside the box, You uh, know, giving credit. It's It's a self-contained story. I think it's good. I think it's interesting. I, I like the final fate of all the villains of the Gotham Below. I like it's even suggested that the Court of Owls in mainstream Gotham are essentially the Court of Owls uh, that, that, that they came up from the Gotham Below because they wanted to gain more power and they could uh, they could they wanted to come up above the Gotham Above because they feel they would have more power to shape uh, reality and shape the city. Uh, I thought it was really well done, and I uh, just. You know, again, I thought it was eerie. I thought it was creepy. I thought it was an interesting alternative uh, uh, description of, of a p- potential origin of the Joker at the end. And and uh, I, the the fact that the part that interested me the least was this new Robin character, this new sidekick for the Batman below. Uh, this 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 young black kid whose father was who, who, he's from Smallville, and his father was killed in Gotham, and he he's seeking revenge. Batman ultimately prevents this kid from taking a life and being a uh, the, the permanent sidekick of the Batman below. But uh, uh, that was the least interesting aspect of the story, as far as I'm concerned. But it was still interesting enough, and thought it was well done. I, 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 I got to give full props to Christian Ward. I thought this was really good, and the ending took me by surprise, and I quite enjoyed it. So, uh, what do you think?
0: Yeah, uh, you know the artwork is fantastic. That's what you come to expect from Christian Ward. It's esoteric. It's interesting. It definitely suited this sort of horror story that he told with, with the Gotham Below. the The idea that that Arkham's son could be the Joker, uh, or or in some way have influenced a Joker, or in some you know parts of the DC multiverse could be the Joker is very interesting. There's also hints that the Court of Owls may have originated originally from the gotham below i like that idea as well um because it is sort of this twisted uh, you know mirror image of of what gotham is we always know gotham's had um very much had its you know high society people that felt like they were kind of uh, above others uh and so you know if you're talking about a mirror image of that 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 definitely could be the court of the owls where you had people that felt like they were the have-nots um of the world. And, and what would they envy? Well, they would envy the people that, you know, the haves, and they would want to emulate that in some way, but still uh, at the end of the day being evil. So uh, yeah, I really appreciated that. I thought this was a, a fantastic story. Uh, I can understand why that, that Robin, this new Robin exists uh, in terms of needing you know an excuse, needing a plot device to get Bruce to go to the to Gotham below to become aware of it. But yeah, it, it is a little clunky at times and doesn't really work uh that well. Um but what does work is is Bruce recognizing the trauma and trying to get through to to Arthur and and you know Arthur ultimately being at the mercy of this this entity um this this evil entity that that both Gotham above and Gotham below are uh, are sort of at, at the mercy of at times. So yeah, fantastic story. Definitely something that Christian Ward or another writer could go back to. And yeah, lots of hints to be explored with the connection of uh, Arthur, Arkham, and the Joker, as well as uh, the Gotham Below and the Court of Owls themselves. Uh, okay. Up next, we have Wesley Dodds, The Sandman, issue number five. Uh, Robert Venditti, the writer. Riley Rosmo on art. Colors by Yvonne Placentia; Letters by Tom Napolitano. little bit of a transitional issue, but there's still plenty of action. Um, so we know that uh what's his name? Vanderlyle was uh was attacked last issue. Wesley Dodds showed up there just in time, was able to stop the attack, and then uh in questioning Vanderlyle, Wesley Dodds uh, comes to the realization that it was the Colonel that he went and did his presentation to early on in the series and, and talked about having non-lethal war, war, warfare using his different uh, sleeping gases and what have you. Um, and so he takes it upon himself to go to the army base and he kidnaps this Colonel, uh, to try to find out who's got his uh, book, who, you know, who's calling the strings, who's behind it. And lo and behold, as we suspected, and then Venditti tried to, to throw us off. Uh, it appears that Vander is behind it uh, after all. So, uh, it leaves it on, un- yeah, yeah. Didn't fool us, but uh, we don't know why. We don't know what the motivations are. Uh, you know, Vanderlyle, having been a, a friend of Wesley Dodd's father, you know, is it just about the money? I, I, I sort of think that's what it'll be. Uh, again, just putting on my fortune teller hat and trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, this was a time where fortunes, old money, was um, was. You know, had been lost in the, the Great Depression a decade earlier, uh, and, and times were changing and people just didn't have that old wealth that they, old world wealth that they used to have. And so maybe it's, this is just that. Maybe this is just Van der wanting to steal that, um, those, that, that book of Wesley Dawes that has all his forms or what, or what have you and turn over to the army and get a payday, or maybe it's something more sinister than that. But either way, the tone, and the feel and the action of the series have been very consistent throughout. I continue to be impressed with Riley Rosmo's art. I don't know if it's just that I've gotten used to it. Uh, He's gotten better, maybe a combination of the two, but once again, uh, the art is just fantastic. Like even things as simple as the way that he draws the fear gas. Uh, It almost looks like a snake weaving around going in people's nostrils and what have you. Uh, And great colors uh, by Yvonne Placencia as well. Giving it um, sort of a feel of the 1940s, feels very uh, authentically 1940s. So that's really working for me uh, as well. Uh, so anyway, what did you think, Rocky?
1: I thought it was very well. First, I want to give uh, I want to give a uh, double your comments on the the art by uh, Riley Rosmo uh, because I mean there there are sequences here where. Uh, there's uh, pages 10 through 14 where where Sandman shows up and he's being attacked and surrounded by gas. It looks absolutely amazing. And as the bullets start to fly, the panels, uh, Riley Roswell is just masterful, how he he deviates from the standard, you know, square panels. And he just, he, he creatively displaces them all on the page in a way that heightens the mood, heightens the action, and it's just amazing. And and as the pages progress from pages, I think it's ten through fourteen, it, you can see the more you can see the chaos. You can see the panels with the bullets flying, the bottles, and the, and and the facial expressions, and showing an eyeball and the gritted teeth, and all and all all leading to a page where Breckenridge is running. He's running away. He's got one arm, and you got bam, 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 and and, and the giant bold letters are actually the panels themselves showing. Reckoners being, uh, shooting and being shot at. It's just, it's, it's extremely well done. And it's that level of creativity that heightens this story that, you know, with all great respect to Benditti, I liked the story. We guessed it. It wasn't exactly the most compelling mystery of all, but it was, It, it nonetheless, it was heightened by fantastic art. And I feel rewarded, not that it was that difficult to figure out what was going on. But I feel rewarded, uh, uh, for under for figuring out the story ahead of time and just the visuals, just fantastic. So all all in all, just very well done. And I'm so glad that I I, I you know I'm so glad I stuck with the series. And a, sh- a shout out to Roddy Rosmo because I want to give him a shout out because I've been very hard on him in the past on his art, but he found he's found his niche with this series. He's done an excellent job and he deserves to be called out for. It.
0: Yeah, I've been. I haven't liked his art in the past. There've been been times where it hasn't.
1: You're mute. Sorry about you. You're mute. Yep.
0: Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, I I echo that. We've been hard on Ryo at times. His art, his art is just so stylized. I mean, I was the first one to admit that his art worked perfectly on that Martian Manhunter series because you know Martian Manhunter is shape shape changer and what have you. But other times we just we haven't liked it on on Harley Quinn and some other things. But yeah, it, it just it's just working here uh, really really well. So again, just. Props to Riley for doing a fantastic job. So, uh, all right, up next we have Batman number one forty three. This is written by uh, Chip Zdarsky. We have art by Giuseppe Camuncoli and uh, Andrea Sorrentini. Uh, colors by. Hold on, let me get to the uh, credits page. Apologies. Um, so I didn't really uh, care for the first issue of this uh, arc. So. Um, the second issue surprised me, um, because it it started to pull me in. (laughs) So I was really surprised uh, pleasantly. So, uh, but we'll talk about that uh, in detail in a second. Let me just, if I can find the stupid credits, uh, of course, it's going to be on the, on the last page, if at all, are the credits here at all? We're on page 30-something. Okay, here we go. Finally. Yeah, Chip Zdarsky writer, Giuseppe Camicoli and Andrea Sorrentini on pencils, Stefano Nessi and Sorrentino on inks, Sanchez and Dave Stewart, Alejandro Sanchez and Dave Stewart on colors, and then Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, yeah, I I was, as I said, really impressed with this. Uh, as much as I'm not a fan of the Joker, and this is, you know, the, the Joker – Sort of origin story, if you will, you know, not not in terms of okay, Ace Chemicals, he falls in a vat of chemicals, it bleaches his skin, it turns his hair green, uh, it, it drives him even further insane. Um, but in terms of what okay, what happened next? How did that was sort of point A, right? Like yeah, everything that happened to Ace Chemicals, and then you you talk about point C, let's call it, and that's when you have that first story uh the one that Tom King and Mitch Garrett's uh Garrett's just homaged in Batman Brave and the Bold, where Batman and the Joker meet up f- for the first time. And I think what we're seeing here with what Zdarsky is building is it wasn't just he fell in the acid and then that was his final iteration. There was a bit of an evolution. There was a bit of an adjustment period for the Joker. To come to terms with who he was and and sort of figure out what he wanted to do, and that it seems like that's what this story is uh, is exploring. Now, you know, you mentioned it last time that that some people may not like this, uh, and I could see it being polarizing. Um, but what's interesting is, uh, so just when you think Zadarsky answering the question, then he he inserts some doubt. Well, is this really what's happening? was the joker really afraid of batman or was he never afraid was he just trying to manipulate events um so that's pretty interesting as well the other thing that's interesting that you, you know we've talked about is this idea of this doctor i can't remember what his name is um but the, capio cap yeah capio and, and and he's he's the one that trained bruce to kind of control his fear and and train his mind to be batman and for and they didn't, they didn't part on good terms. Him and Bruce Wayne did not part on good terms. And apparently this guy holds a grudge, like maybe the biggest grudge of all time, because he goes and seeks out the Joker. He's like, yeah, Bruce Wayne may be the most brilliant mind that I ever encountered until this, until this Joker. And I'm going to help this Joker, you know, become something that's going to be more brilliant than Bruce Wayne. That's going to have the ability to destroy Bruce Wayne. Like, dude, what a grudge. What a, what a jerk you are. Um, but again, some people may not like that they're tying the the this idea of who the Joker is so closely to who Batman is, to the point they're be you know being trained by the same people. I can sort of understand that, but at the same time, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about how the the Batman and the Joker are kind of opposite sides of the same coin. So why wouldn't you have that p- parallel of you know so many ways that they're they're similar? Um, but at the same time, I get it, right? Like you're asking us to believe a hell of a lot of coincidences, uh, but maybe that's just how the DC universe works. So uh, it's still at the end of the day is a Joker story. So, you know, I, I still kind of groan uh, when I'm like, oh, here we go. But I was entertained by this. Um, and, and I've only talked about the flashback the, the story that's happening in present time is even more interesting to me. This idea that the Joker finally succeeded. Uh, in a way, it almost feels like the last Batman Joker story. Uh, you know, I know we had whatever it was, Batman Last Night by uh, Snyder and Capullo, but but this truly feels like the last Batman story to the point where we see Selena Kyle and she gets uh, subjected to whatever the Joker has going on, something to do with sound waves that's turning everybody into Jokers. She had rounded up the rest of the Bat family after they'd been Jokerized, uh, and, and this is a Batman that's clearly older and has lost a step. So how does he win the day when the Joker seems just as powerful as ever? Uh I guess that's what we'll have to wait and see, but yeah, fantastic the 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 story that's taking place in in present day. Uh and I imagine although they other than obviously they both have Batman and the Joker, there haven't been too many tie-ins yet, but I imagine by the time we get to the end of uh of this these parallel stories that we'll see how they tie together a lot more closely than it appears at this point. So yeah. I mean, as much as I didn't like 142, this was a, a vast improvement. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I actually found myself enjoying this. Um, don't tell anybody. I've got to keep my, my Joker rants, uh, you know, close to hand when needed, but, uh, I got to imagine Rocky, you enjoyed 142 immensely. Uh, this probably was even better in your, in, uh, in your mind. What'd you think?
1: I did enjoy this. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite quite well. I I mean, initially I had mixed had feelings about it. I'm I'm a little bit confused by this this future story where, where the, the the future Joker might be the last Joker story where the Joker's spreading a virus that is spread through laughter through audio waves and uh, and he's infected the entire Batman family and that that's someplace in the future. How does that relate? How does that relate to this? The origin of the Joker between Dr. you know, Doctor Captia? Train um, both Bruce Wayne in, in order to avoid fear and to in order to access multiple personalities. Uh, because Batman created a persona of Surana ah because of the training he got from Dr. Kaptia, And and it's implied that the Joker, the three jokers are three different psychological manifestations of the Joker, directly as a result of his training with Dr. Kaptia as well. So that's interesting. How does that relate to we gotta remember that we gotta remember that. Two issues ago, the Joker and Bruce Wayne are trapped together in a cell and fa- they're, they're the captains of failsafe. And the Joker and Batman, one of the questions Batman asked the Joker is, how did you know? How do you know about Zer? And how do you know about these other people? How do you you know? How do you know what you know? And so this might be the Joker sort of telling Bruce Wayne the story, his origin. So Batman... This might be the first time that this is a story, even though the 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 narration here is Dr. Cap A lot of the narration is by Dr. we but printed Dr. Capier's thoughts. Who, as he lay dying at the end, killed by the Joker, he's 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 almost bragging to himself. He's so narcissistic. Even as he's dying, killed by the Joker, he calls the Joker perfect. I created the perfect weapon. Could, could he fool me all this time? He's a perfect weapon of chaos. And and he's he's so impressed with himself. And he says, look out, Bruce. You know he's coming for you now, and in the so you gotta wonder now. What what I what I find exciting about this is a number of things. First is that this origin of the Joker, uh, it, it, whether you think the Joker was playing Doctor Caprio for a fool and just wanted to get training from him or using him or not, you can still sort of reconcile this with the three Jokers. You can even reconcile this with Tom King's Batman Year One story. You can even reconcile this with the Killing Joke, if you really, if you really think about it. It's and uh, because it's not inconsistent or necessarily incompatible with any of the past iterations or origins of the Joker, with a little bit of creative headcanon, you can fit it in. It's It might be a little messy, but you can fit it in. And frankly, with DC continuity being as convoluted as it is, because it is a lot lot of history there of this, especially the Joker, I think that's, I want to give uh, Zardaski some props because I think, I think this actually works here. And uh, I actually liked it, so I'm going to be really curious to know. Uh, I mean, I know that you, you you seem you don't seem to mind. It. Be curious to know what the larger comic reading public thinks of this story as well. I actually quite enjoyed it. I think that uh, I think it was a pretty good job here. Doctor Capio wants to cure the Joker. He wants to expand the Joker's mind, and boy, did he succeed in doing that. Now, um, but how does this relate to the future? How what's going to happen now? Now that Bruce Wayne, Batman, and the Joker both realize. Now that Bruce Wayne knows that both he and the Joker were trained by Dr. Captia and they're they're both trapped and held captive by Failsafe. And one of Batman's psychological inner profiles, Zuranat, is in the is now in Failsafe's body. What are Joker and Batman going to do as a team to defeat Failsafe? Are they going to work together? I don't know. Uh, this origin of the Batman is not even older yet. And what does this what does this future story have to do with this main story? I'm not really sure. Uh, The Commissioner Gordon story is pretty good, too. And all in all, if if I have one criticism of Zardaski's story here is that he's weaving together a lot of part of moving parts. I don't think he did a very good job at all of uh, he should have. I don't even think Dr. Kaplow's name is mentioned in either this issue or the previous issue. That's a significant miss. I think for new readers, you're going to have to read. You have to read Batman the Night, issue eight, where Dr. Kaplow is in to fully get this. So I think that I think that you're going to, I think some homework is going to be necessary for new readers. If they're, if they're going to, if DC's going to collect this as a trade, they're going to have to throw in that issue of Dr. Cap, yeah, issue eight of the night, I think, uh, but maybe some disagree on that, but so I, I think that probably in putting this together, the story is good, but I think for new readers, it might be a little bit more difficult to catch on to, but I hope I'm wrong, but I'm enjoying it, but I'm a long time reader and I, I just had a lot of fun with this. So
0: yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Again, I thought uh, I I, I'm, I was surprised. I was pleasantly surprised how much I was pulled in by uh, by freaking Joker story. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Speed Force number four. This is written by Jarrett Williams, art by Danielle Dinaculo colors by Andrew Dalhouse, letters by Simon Bolin. What do you think of this?
1: All right. Um, you, you're gonna. I, I um, uh, okay. Uh, this was basically, I, I mentioned earlier that I might have a rant. I, and this was going to be the issue where I ranted a little bit. I'm going to, I, I actually had some extra time, uh, today, this afternoon. And I thought just for, for shits and giggles, I would, I would read this until I actually understood. And until I could actually ascertain some discernible plot. And, uh, I think I kind of sort of got a discernible plot here. We got this character, the fiddler, called Fiddles, and he's he's citing he's he's working with the, the music meister uh, in order to manipulate an app called the Symphony App, which is a music app to get subscribers onto it, and they want to brainwash people who use the Symphony App. So it would be like it would be like if all of us downloaded Spotify. And Spotify was an app that the brainwashes. This is what Fiddles and this music maestro mod want to do. And they want to overthrow this other music mogul called Sebastian Seg, who's got a robotic companion called Stagatron. And um, somehow this is linked to a bunch of missing scientists that were, were, what, that were kidnapped or disappeared in issue one. I'm not sure why. And I there is a slew of new characters that just pop up here that uh, were, I mean, including fiddles and, and then there was um, uh, uh, this Isaac character and Maude and, and Dragon Son and, and my criticism of this series is that I, I'm, I'm just, while I'm trying to figure out the plot, the plot is drowned out in the writer's attempt and, uh, forgive me, the writer is, uh, Williams. Yeah, Jarrett Williams.
0: yeah, Jarrett Williams, uh, Jarrett,
1: yeah, Jarrett Williams. Jarrett Williams spends so much time. There's so much exposition, here, way too much exposition and the exposition. There's not enough exposition explaining what's going on plot wise. And instead we got pages where Wallace West is angsting about, about, uh, about feeling bad about not asking for help when he needs it. And then Avery getting upset that she feels that she's better than she is because she's, She's better than this. And she's upset with Wallace because Wallace didn't ask for help. And, and there's, there's, there's a very vain attempt at character work that fails. It doesn't work because I can't get into the character work because I'm struggling. I, I, it needs to be grounded in a plot. And I found myself in my struggle to understand what was going on and why are these characters here? Why are there so many characters on the page they're superfluous, they're unnecessary. Just tell me what the plot is, first of all, before I can get grounded on the characters. We don't know Wallace West enough or Avery enough. They don't have an established friendship until really this series to begin with, quite frankly, other than a couple of minor appearances. So I don't feel that they know each other well enough anyway. The the sequence where they're battling Superboy, Superboy's costume is or Connor Kent's costume is different. That looks wonky. Uh, I, I think he's over. I think his mind was overtaken last issue by this music Apple symphony of some kind. It brainwashed him. So I can I kind of get that. I think the art was a little a little bit too eclect- too stylistic for me. But I could the art I could get used to. But the the plot was just there's there's too many words on this page. Uh Jared Williams does. He tries so hard making all these characters sound natural. You can see his attempt. At the work. There's so much dialogue here. He tries to give each character their own voice with slang and everything else, but it just confused me. It, it conglomerated to such and, and built up to a point where I just felt each panel was almost disconnected. To it wasn't unified by a common thread in my mind, and I personally felt overwhelmed reading it. And I think. It's it's almost like he takes a simple concept of a plot and didn't really address it and then just bombarded the, the reader with with dialogue that doesn't serve any larger narrative that I could that I could find. I was very frustrated with this. I'm being I'm being as diplomatic as I can. I think there's a good story here, but I think it's just lost in the uh, verboseness of it all. So what do you think?
0: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Lost in the verboseness of it all. Um, yeah, I think like this would work better in my mind if if we knew for sure. Okay, this is this is a story that is not in regular continuity, right? Because you know, you talk about a, a, an attempt at characterization and it failing. Well, we've seen these aren't characters. You, there's a lot of characters, and some are new. But most of them are characters we've seen before. You know, we're, we're seeing Roundhouse, we're seeing Mr. Terrific, we're seeing Wallace West, we're seeing Avery, you know, the Flash of China, what have you. These are characters that we've seen before. And we sort of know what to expect from them. I mean, they're not fully fleshed out, you know, major characters right. where we know exactly how they would act or have a good idea. But a baseline has been established with these characters, especially with Wallace West. And he acts so wildly out of character here with this angst and, and, you know, worrying about things and what have you. And it's like, this is not nowhere near this. It's not the same character that other people have been writing about. So there's sort of that disconnect. And then the other part of it, and you mentioned this as well. Yes. Walls and walls of text, walls and walls of text. Now, Jared Williams hasn't written a ton of comics and, you know, it is a learning curve, but show don't tell. Show, don't tell. Uh, and, and you have to build on what's come before. And so that's, you know, those two things, that's where it's falling apart. You build on what comes before you don't. And so if you're using the same characterization and the same personality for these characters that we've come to expect, you don't have to dump walls and walls of text on the, the page because we already kind of know who they are. But he's he's changing who these characters are at such a fundamental level that he's got no uh, other out other than to just put up just thought bubble after, you know, not thought bubble, but exposition box after exposition box uh, over and over. Um, it is kind of cool to see old Flash villains like, uh, you know, they call them fiddles here, but clearly it's the fiddler. Um, Isaac Brown they even refer to him as Isaac. Um, but again, um, there's no content. It's, it's funny, like walls and walls of text from Avery, walls and walls of text from Wallace. But when it comes to somebody who. Newer readers may not be that familiar with. I couldn't tell you the last time the Fiddler showed up in a in a Flash comic. It had to be like back during the original Wally West run that started in 1987. Um, you know that yellow cover with the jets on it or what have you. Um, sometime in that series, I'm pretty sure it was the last time the Riddler showed up. So uh, or showed up in a Flash comic anyway. So there's going to be a, a ton of new newer Flash readers that have no idea who this guy is. But you don't spend any time. No time on any kind of background for the fiddler, but we have walls of text about um, Avery mad because Wallace didn't call her when he said he would, but yet he had time to go get a haircut. Like, I, I don't know. It seemed, it seems kind of trivial to me. You know, maybe it's authentic. May you know, maybe it's a little get off my lawn for us to to sort of rant about this because he clearly is a young writer, and you know, based on the vernacular he's using. This is how kids talk these days, I guess. It's not how my 11 year old daughter talks, but uh, I don't know. Maybe this is how teenagers talk. I I couldn't say, but yeah, it, this by by far wasn't the worst uh, issue of the series. I do feel like there's improvement, but it still has a long way to go in order to be an entertaining comic in my mind. Agreed. Uh, All right. Let's move on. Up next, we have uh, Red Hood, The Hill. This is written by Sean Martinborough. Sanford Green is the artist. Matt Herms on colors, Troy Petrie on letters. Um, I'm going to say, unfortunately, uh, because I didn't really enjoy this that much, but it sort of is exactly what I expected it to be. I don't know the timing on it. I don't know why this is coming out so long after the Joker War because it ties in so closely to the Joker war, which I did not enjoy at all. So the last thing I want to do is go back and, you know, read stories set in that time or right after that time. Um, but that being said, you know, I, if you give me a good Jason Todd story, I'll probably still be on board. And this has the potential to be a good Jason Todd story that where it falls down for me is there's so many other characters that I just couldn't care less about. It literally is not possible for me to care less about any of these other characters, whether they be the the villains or this this hero group that his family owns a diner in the hill. I don't care. I don't care. I've been given no reason to care and when you add on to this and I again I knew this was going to happen. I was told Sanford Green or, or it was it was announced that Sanford Green was the artist. I'm just not a fan of his style. It's messy, it's muddy, uh, it doesn't, in my mind, suit superheroes stories at all. I don't know if he influences um, his color artists when he works with them. I've seen Matt Herms color things very brightly before. This is not colored that way. This is all brown and dreary. and just adds to a feeling of kind of moroseness to the story. Uh, like I, I just didn't enjoy this at all. Like It was a chore to read. There were several times when I was reading it that I, I just wanted to stop. I just wanted to put it down and, and not read it. But I kept telling myself, well, maybe it'll get better. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll get a little bit more. I mean, it says the name of the book, the name of the series is Red Hood the Hill. I, to say that Red Hood feels like a supporting character in this book is a vast understatement. Uh, it's more than a cameo, but he's got no agency at all. It's all these other supporting characters that, again, I don't care about. If you call the book The Hill and say it's about, you know, XYZ characters that nobody's ever heard of before, probably, it's not going to sell any any at all, right? And so you understand why they call it Red Hood. But it's a little bit of a bait and switch in my mind because this is not a Red at least in this first issue is not a red hood story in the slightest. So I, I, I didn't like it. Um, I'd go so far as to say that I enjoyed speed force more than, more than I liked it. This, this for me, was the worst comic of the week and it's not a technically bad comic. It's just, it's just not, it's just not a red hood story and it's not art that I enjoy. And I, I knew I wasn't going to like the art, but I was hoping that it would actually be a Red Hood story, but it's not. It's a story about these other characters that I couldn't possibly care less about. So uh, I don't know. I don't know, Rocky. What would you think? Am I being too harsh? I, uh,
1: I think you are definitely being too harsh on this. Uh, uh, only because, I mean, I agree, that, yeah, I agree with you in some respects, but I actually thought this was a well-written story. And uh, it's infinitely better than uh, Speed Force which by far. Well, more, not only in the- my
0: defense, in my defense, I said it's a technically well done comic, and i i I will not I will not say that about Speed Force. But I'm I just said I enjoyed it more. <laughs> I enjoyed. There was I got more enjoyment, even though there were technical issues, and there's there's a lot of issues technically with Speed Force. Don't get me wrong. But I, I just enjoyed it. What it Speed Force didn't feel like a dreary comic. And this, to me, both in story and art, feels like a dreary comic. So,
1: yeah. Well, I will say that this carried on because I think it was last week we got the Red Hood, the Hill, which sort of branches into this. And uh, this is – you're right that one of the criticisms is that this, this really – Red Hood is an afterthought in this comic. He he doesn't. He, he's actually he, he's not really needed. It's the story of Strike and Edge, and Strike is, <laughs> the hero is, is a is a is a street vigilante. Uh, her real name is Dana Harlow. She's got a she's got a sister named Denise, who was a reporter in Gotham City in this area called the Hill. And Strike, uh, as her in her alter ego, with Frank, she makes a deal with a Captain Battle, who's a local cop. Uh, to turn the other way while she cleans up the streets during uh, Joker War. So one of the reasons why The Hill is considered one of the safer parts of Gotham is because of the works that the Slayers are making these making a deal with uh, one of the captains of uh, one of the police. Uh, unfortunately, the, the villain, the bad guy of the series, is this Slayer character who's working with this sort of like rap artist, uh, but, or this this uh, sort of like a Kanye West character uh, by the name of Demetrius Carney Jr., and, uh, they, they want to sell all their running shoes and all their goods, both legally and illegally. And they really want to control the hill and, and in doing so they end up killing the pastor and they, they really want to, uh, they want to like spread their influence and, uh, both in terms of online social media, but also controlling the streets and social media. And, and they seem to be doing a relatively successful job of it, but of course, uh, Strike is getting in the way, and Strike's sister uh, Denise, who's a reporter, is also uh, getting in the way with her reporting. Uh, frankly, I thought uh, I thought Sean Martin Bro's art. I agree with you that it's it is it is darker. It's it has it's dark. It's very moody. It um it I I will I will totally confess it, I had to read this. It's only because I had extra time that I, I read this because I. I I was kind of turned off by initially reading it as well. I'm glad I read it. I think the story is worth it. I, I think it's I think it's good. But uh, and, and for no other reason than that this is actually introducing us to new new characters that could be interesting in the future. This uh, this uh, this strike character seems interesting. Her family seems interesting. Jason J- 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 and is almost used as a potential love interest in there. I prefer Jason Todd as, as 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 working with Artemis and Bizarro, but um, that's just me. <laughs> I'm I'm not everyone agrees with that, but that's my favorite Jason Todd sort of team up. Like I, this, I thought this wasn't bad. Is it my cup of tea? Not necessarily, but I do um I I I did enjoy it and I thought it was well done by Martin Burrow. And I thought the art suited the mood and ambiance of the story, although maybe not if if you look at it from the point of view that the hill is supposed to be a safer part of Gotham. That was the central conceit of the story. And yet it looked exactly, it felt almost as gloomier gloomier than Gotham, which it, it shouldn't have. So the art should have been a little bit more cleaner to better represent the, the, the sensibility of the story. But that's a minor criticism, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, I hope when we get more, it starts to focus more on Jason Todd Red Hood moving forward maybe I can get on board, but yeah, I just, I'm not interested in those other characters. I, I, I'm just not. Uh, okay. Up next we have action comics number 1062 written by Jason Aaron art and uh, or sorry, art and cover, I guess, by John Timms, the way they have it listed colors are by Rex Locus letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, not a good time to be in Metropolis as uh Bizarro sort of uh, taken over. What do you think of
1: this? Uh, I kudos to Jason Aaron, man. I, I I enjoyed this. I I thought the whole issue was just. Uh, I mean, there's not a heck of a lot that happens in this issue, other than just showing the full effect of wow. the whole, the the, the, biz- the bizarroing of the world, in particular Metropolis, as everyone is turning into their opposite and. Uh, it, it became very clear that Superman himself is becoming the arch enemy of all the people of Metropolis. And it's in a very, it's very appropriate that that Lois Lane, of course, who was the biggest supporter of Superman for obvious reasons, she becomes like the arch enemy of Superman. And uh, Jason Aaron does a really good job here of just showing the plight. And, and the title of the of the issue is live, Bizar- live bizarro or die. And, uh, you know, and and even the cover saying, you know, lit with Bizarro's, Bizarro saying die, or pardon me, Bizarro saying live, meaning, of course, the opposite die. I, I thought, I mean, again, a very simplistic idea of the opposite, but Jason Aaron has a lot of fun with it, and he, he, he I mean, uh, he does a really good job of conveying, frankly, uh, particularly if, uh, through the art of uh, John Timms, just how terrifying that would be, that all of a sudden people are, are embracing the, 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 the darker aspects, the, the opposite aspects of their characters and their actions, and it's creating absolute chaos. And unfortunately, uh, I like how Jason Aaron is mindful, unlike many writers, uh, mindful of the fact that uh, Superman is part of the larger universe. So the Justice League's involved, or other characters are mentioned. Uh, Dr. Fate uh, is involved, but he's, he's unfortunately impacted by it. And so uh, mystic users are involved. Batman's involved, but only on the periphery, because Jason Aaron knows that this is a Superman story. So he keeps it focused on Superman. And it becomes clear that Superman himself, while impacted and infected and slowly being uh, overcome by the bizarro virus, a bizarro effect, whatever you want to call it, he very clearly uh, formulates a plan. And it's a desperate plan. And it's clear that... Despite the efforts of all the mystical users and the magic users on Earth, Bizarro is arguably the most powerful magical user in a, arguably the multiverse right now because of the, what he did in the first issue and in, in uh, destroying all the magicians of the sorcerers on Jam World and, and and elsewhere. Yeah, Bizarro is re- extremely powerful and seems to be occupying a part of Superman's mind, or at least that's what's implied. And and the ending here, I just thought. I just thought it was inspired. And the reason I love the ending and the ending here was Superman desperate. How do you stop? How do you stop the insanity of Bizarro world? Well, how do you impose sanity on an insane mind like Bizarro? Uh, well, you, you go to the Joker, who's the opposite. Now, if the Joker is the most insane person on the planet, then if he's by the Bizarro effect, then obviously he's the Joker becomes the most sane man uh, in the uh, in the DC universe, and the final page reveal where where the Joker shows up and he's going to help Superman, you know, manipulate the psyche of his, his own psyche to overcome the bizarre effect. I think it's just absolutely inspired, and the reason why I love it more is is because this same week we got Batman one forty three knowing the effect that, that knowing that, that the Joker has the ability to create different psyches within himself. <laughs> the fact it puts a new spin and it makes me think differently about the possibilities of a sane Joker. I mean, is it possible that the Joker could, I mean, again, this is not related in, there's no reason I've, I've not read anything. There's no reason to believe that Jason Aaron was even aware those Zardasky's run. They're not connected. This is his own story, but I like the convenient, seren- serendipitous overlap of the stories because I just put a bigger smile on my face when I saw this sane Joker looking so sophisticated, walking with the arrogance and the and the confidence of a Sherlock Holmes. He's going to help Superman in the final page revealer. I thought it was just inspired. to put a great big shit on my face, and I, I really enjoyed this And, uh, I, am normally a guy who's absolutely sick of the Joker, but I gotta say this week, I'm uh, seeing the Joker and these types of stories is really put a smile on my face.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, similar to how I felt, you know, second part of the story to how I felt about the second part of the Batman story that, that we got this week, you know, as much as I'm not a big fan of the Joker, great to see the Joker here because it's a different take, right? It's something that's new and fresh. It's the Joker and he's sane, right? Like this idea of, of yeah, you you said it, the most insane guy in the world. What's the opposite of that? Well, the most sane guy, like the most logical guy. So, yeah, the fact that he's going, that Superman is going to get help from the Joker in order to defeat the Bizarro is, is amazing. I also mentioned I, I Bizarro to me, not a character I ever really... Enjoyed because it's it's, it just doesn't work saying it's the exact opposite right he says hello when he arrives and or 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 bye goodbye when he arrives and hello when he leaves or whatever you can do little things like that but it it just doesn't it just doesn't work really well but Jason Aaron is making it work he's making it fun I mean Bizarro doesn't show up a heck of a lot in this actual issue (laughs) excuse me we but we do get plenty of Superman and we get Superman trying to fight off Bizarro and, and Bizarro's in his head. Um, sort of speaking to him at, at times and then trying to break him down. <laughs> but it was interesting early on when Metropolis got infected. And by the end of the issue, the whole, like Rocky said, the whole world's infected. The rest of the justice league tried to contain it. Like you mentioned, it eventually broke out and got everywhere. Um, but, but early on, you know, it's Metropolis is sort of ground zero for this um, infection and, and Lois is infected and, um and seeing her burn books, which again, exact opposite of Lois, but it was hard to see. It was hard. I like man, there, there's an argument that can be made that I, I like Lois more than than Superman himself as a character. But but anyway, um, yeah, with Lois and and Superman being infected first and then spreading out from there in a way, um, and, and then seeing sort of the the catastrophe that unfolds for the city that that Superman just loves. It, there's a tragedy there, but what made the tragedy worse is the fact that, in some way, somehow we don't know how at this point, Superman is able to fight off the spell. He's able, you know, you, you'd expect more from Batman, right? To with the you know willpower or or Hal Jordan with the willpower to be able to fight off the spell. And I only say that, and not not that I don't think Superman is very strong willed, but it's magic. It's one of his weaknesses. So to see him fight that off, but still being infected by Bizarro in some way is really interesting to me. Obviously, we're going to see more, um, probably more fallout from that as well. And then right at the end, when he he flies away, when Superman kind of thinks about it, okay, who who can help me defeat Bizarro? Oh, you know, the most sane guy in the world, Joker. Bizarro Joker, I guess you'd say, uh, and he flies away. And there's a part of Lois that's glad to see him leaving, but then there's a part of her that that thinks, Clark? Wait, so is she able? Is is it the love that they have for each other? Is that how they're able to fight off the magic spell? I guess we'll have to wait and see. But brilliantly inspired. Like, as much as I, I the first issue just didn't work that well for me, um, one of the things that I thought was brilliant that Jason Aaron did was to have Bizarro as a magic wielder. And, and we talked about it at the time. Like, well, of course, he'd be a very powerful magic user. If Superman is very vulnerable to magic, and Bizarro's the opposite of Superman, it stands to reason, right? Like, brilliant. That, that's just brilliant reasoning from Jason Aaron. I can't wait to to ask him about that. So, yeah, uh, really, I feel really good about where we are with um, with the Superman titles. Joshua Williamson's been doing a fantastic job. We've gone from a fantastic PKJ run to now. Uh, I was a little worried about Jason Aaron on the title. Uh, and then that first issue it was only okay for me. But man, he knocked the second issue out of the park. So feeling really good about where we are uh, with Action Comics this year. Uh, okay. Last comic we're going to talk about in detail. Uh, Green Lantern number eight from writer Jeremy Adams. Art is by Amon K. Nahalipin. Colors by Ramulo Fajardo Jr. Letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, and then there's a backup as well um, that actually stars Kyle Rayner. And it's written by somebody who's uh, pretty familiar with uh, with Kyle Rayner. Uh, Ron Mars uh, jumps on and, and writes the Kyle Rayner story. Uh, uh, Joe Mullen shows up in it as well. And it looks like it's going to lead into s- some other aspects of uh, Green Lantern, uh, sort of the cosmic part of it. And, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But Dale Eaglesham handles the art on the backup Alex Quirmus is on colors and Dave Sharp's on letters, but let's talk about the main story first. Uh, Rocky, um, we have uh, a, a a blue lantern that w- that we know showed up last issue and was asking um, how, like, what are you doing stuck on Earth? The you know Green Lantern Corps really needs your help, and he explains what happened on Odom and how somebody—they're not sure who. Um, showed up on, on Odim, which is basically the homeworld of the, the Blue Lanterns, and destroyed the Blue Lantern battery. And he's also heard rumors that somebody went to Koragar, uh and destroyed the Yellow Lantern battery. And somebody went, I can't remember the name of the, the planet that the, the Red Lanterns, uh, Isimal went to Isomalt and and destroyed the Red Lantern. So he's like, you got to get off the planet. You got to get out there and find out who's doing this or what have you. And Hal's like, I can, I've tried. And he's like, really? Have you really tried? Uh, And I, I don't remember seeing this blue lantern before razor is his name. Uh, He may be a new character. I'm not hundred percent sure. Uh, Maybe he showed up in the Jeff Johns run as more of a a minor character, or maybe I just don't remember him. I I honestly don't know. It's been so long since I've read blackest night or what have you, but he is kind of arrogant and he is, you know kind of self assured, and he sells Jordan. He's not trying hard enough, so Hal he gives it his best, he gives it his best and, and tries multiple times to uh to escape, and he's not able to. Um, and he decides to go to Madame Xanadu for help. So, a lot of magic stuff going on in, in the DCU uh these days, and Xanadu definitely senses something. Uh, and as she's trying to, to relay what's going on and tells Hal where he needs to go to investigate these three. Other lan- i guess their lanterns show up, um, but they also seem like they're members or, or maybe council members of the United Planets. <laughs> so this goes back to something that we talked about before, where I've I've talked about this idea of the United Planets and how they they seem almost malevolent here as they're starting out, which I don't I don't really care for. Uh, I just like to think of the United Planets as sort of uh, you know a neutral bureaucratic. Uh, Organization, you know, you don't think of them anymore uh, as evil than you would like the DMV. Yeah, they're a pain in the ass and you hate dealing with them, but it's just bureaucracy. Um, but th- these guys clearly have something else going on. And what's interesting is, you know, they show up. They confront they're there to get Razor because he was not supposed to leave Odim um but they see that Hal Jordan has a ring, and they're like, wait, what are you doing with the ring? You're not supposed to have a ring. You're supposed to be quarantined here. What's going on? That's not even a you know one of our rings. It doesn't communicate. Clearly, it's something different. <clears throat> but in their courts of trying to, to apprehend Odin and uh, Hal Jordan, they actually change. They change their emotional spectrum, which is not supposed to be possible, although we have seen one uh, character. I think it was in the Robert Venditti run that could – that could change or might have been in the same Humphreys Green Lanterns run. But anyway, these guys are able to we- wield different uh, emotional ex- spectrums all off the same ring. They, they change to yellow. They change to blue in the middle of the fight and they are able to, uh, to grab Razor and fly off. Um, but they, uh, they leave Hal behind. Uh, only because they're worried that they won't be able to escape Earth. Um, and they're like, well, we're, we weren't here for Hal anyway. We'll deal with him later. And they fly off with the Razor. And then Hal goes to the spot, um, Monte de Santa de Aguarda, Galicia, I think it's somewhere in Spain, um, where Z- Madame Zanadu told him to go where he might find the answers uh, uh, to what may be holding him back and keeping him from leaving Earth with this uh, unique ring that he has. So a lot happening in the issue, a lot of action. The art by Nahilipan is fantastic. Um You know, we know that the, the editorial mandate to Jeremy Adams was you got to keep Green Lantern on Earth. It's interesting, right? He's still going to tell a cosmic story though. If he's stuck on Earth, he'll just come up with reasons why Hal's stuck on Earth. The reason is not so dissimilar from why Silver Surfer was stuck on Earth for <laughs> decades over at Marvel before he finally figured it out. Uh, which was brilliantly done back in the day, um, but yeah, Hal Jordan's stuck on Earth. I'll just, they'll just bring the cosmic to him, you know. We got a Blue Lantern showing up. We got uh, these Guardians, Guardian Lanterns showing up. You know, Sinestro was there on Earth, so it, it definitely feels like it's building towards something big. And uh, you know, I think I think Jeremy's mentioned, or maybe it was. Um, maybe it was Philip Kenny Johnson, that their books are are sort of on a collision course. Look for a Green Lantern event um, coming up toward the end of the year or maybe early next year is my guess. I don't know anything for sure, but that's my guess. So uh, anyway, what would you think of this issue of Green Lantern, Rocky?
1: Well, something is happening with the emotional spectrum because, as you said, all the batteries, 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 Red Lantern, Blue Lantern, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they've all been apparently destroyed. Uh, the, these, this United Planets, this set of three Green Lanterns of the United Planet Lanterns, uh, Lanterns appear to be having the ability of multiple spectrums of the they be able to. We know, for, we know. In this issue, they've accessed willpower, fear, and hope. Now, do they have the power of the Red Lantern? Do they have the power of greed? Do they have the avarice? Do they do they have these other powers as well? Do they have the power of the Star Sapphires? We don't know, but we do know that uh, Jordan, uh, Carol Ferris in this issue has a has the conversation with Hal. She almost confesses, almost seems to confess her feelings for him. She doesn't want Hal to leave, but Hal needs to leave. So there's uh, Jeremy Adams does a good job of building tension there. Uh, you mentioned how maybe it's an editorial mandate that you got to keep Hal Jordan on Earth. Good, I'm liking this because I like the fact that the universe is going to shit. Well, uh, how Jordan's trapped on Earth that builds the tensions, that raises the stakes. I like the fact that, as you said, PHA hinted at the fact that both him and Jeremy Adams are their storylines will be converging in some respects. I love the idea, man. If we get the Revenant Queen with that, with her wonky powers and and John Stewart's unique kind of ring and his unique kind of power set. And you throw that in with an emotional spectrum gone awry and with Hal Jordan when he finally ultimately does leave Earth, uh, then confronting, inevitably confronting Sinestro again. And I don't care what anybody says, Sinestro's got to be upset with the United Planet controlling the Sinestro uh, battery. I mean, you know, this is, this has all the makings this could be. I mean, really, this sounds epic. This sounds really cool. Now, I, I almost don't want to get my hopes up too high because it sounds like something that is really building something really cool and just plain awesome. And it's just the fanboy in me is I'm just geeking out from this, just from the potential of, of this. And um, yeah, and, and again, I'm, I'm a little bit frustrated on the one hand that hell sort of restricted to earth and now he ends up in Spain because Madam Xanderby says, go to Spain because when he was battling Sinestro at one point, he felt a power surge in that, in that area of of the world and near Spain and maybe maybe something there can help him get off planet. So, uh, but uh, if, the, if Jeremy Adams, if he is mandated to sort of keep how on earth, uh, that can be frustrating in the hands of a shitty writer because it, it feels like it's decompressed and it's dragging it out. But I feel that we're getting, we're getting character moments here. We're getting revelations here. We're getting uh, cool moments here. I'm enjoying it. I'm plus, I'm enjoying what's happening with John Stewart, Green Lantern. And uh, to top it off, I'm also enjoying to see Kyle Rayner in the backup, which we can talk about now. So what do you think of the backup?
0: Yeah, one more thing about the main story. Like, such a different feel. Yeah, I'm so bad at that today. Uh, One more thing about the main story. Like, this has such a different feel than his flash run. Like, his flash run felt all ages, and it felt family friendly and and so interesting. And this feels like, so like you said, epic and super heroic and what have you, like, man, Jeremy is just a super talented writer. He continue to feel like he doesn't get enough credit for, uh, for what he does. So, uh, yeah, as far as the backup goes, I mean, uh, great to see Kyle Rayner and nobody gets his voice down better than what Ron Mars does, but it's all, it's all sort of set up, right? Like, um, Kyle clearly knows there's something going on or he senses there's something going on. Something's not right with the United Planet. Something not, is not right with the, the Green Lantern Corps. You can't get a hold of Hal. Um, he, he doesn't agree with that Hal's um, you know, stranded on Earth. He doesn't think that's right. Um, but really interesting to go all the way back to his earliest, even before he had the Lantern Ring at all. And his girlfriend, Alex, who you could argue that uh, you know, with without Alex, there'd be no uh, Gail Simone comic book creator, because Alex was a, a character that was seemingly created by Ron Mars and Daryl Banks, Daryl Banks, who was recently on the the podcast to talk about his current Kickstarter campaign, um, but created and then killed and stuffed in a refrigerator by I think it was Major Disaster, uh, as sort of a plot device. Majors. Majors. Major Force. There you go. Major Force uh sort of as a plot device to to give agency to Kyle Rayner and have him you know have a reason to to get out there and and you know be all he could be as it were so yeah interesting, interesting to see that when Kyle needs somebody to talk to he's using the the willpower uh of the green spectrum to to recreate Alex and say you know I still miss you um all these years later so yeah, uh, really fantastic from, um, from Ron Mars and, and great art and hints of, you know, things to come, hints of things to come. Uh, clearly, this is a, a bigger story, as we mentioned. So, uh, yeah, what do you think of it? I
1: thought it was actually a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful choice by Ron Mars to have the character of Alex DeWitt. That's her full name. And I want to say her full name because I know she's a fictional character and we're just reading the comic book. But when you for those of us who are familiar and who live through that period of time, that the whole concept of the woman in refrigerators, the controversy it, it caused, and, and it's still with us today. The, the 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 expression when you fridge a character, that's when you fridge a character to create drama and for <laughs> another character to do something. So usually it's women who are fridged or killed off in order to motivate a male character in the traditional sense. And whether or not you believe that or, or not, uh, that that's an agenda in some stories or not is besides the point. What I like what Lauren Morris does here by using Alex is that he's saying that, look, even if it was frigid back in the day, and that's what, Alex, that's what Gail Simone called it in an article uh, before she became more famous as a, as a, as a writer, the, the fact that he's having, the fact that he's how, having Kyle Rayner remember her and then his moments where he's, he's by himself and he's feeling lonely and he's maybe, and he needs to express himself. The fact that he thinks of her and he's never forgotten her. I think that redeems the controversy a little bit in my mind. It's saying, look, this character does care about Alex. She wasn't just uh, a random victim stuffed in a refrigerator. She was more than that she was somebody who this character hasn't forgotten. And I think that's very important. I thought that was wonderful that Ron Mars did that. And then to top it off with a new character soldier show up, very clearly she knows that it's a private moment that he's having. I thought that we really hit it home. And in particular, I just want to point out something that Jon Stewart, in John, in, in, uh, in in his series, PKJ gave John Stewart the ability to essentially almost create an extra kind of sentient life for his is like his mother giving, you know, embodying a, a new essence or life force for his mother uh uh in create is recreating a construct of his of his yeah. sister, baby sister. And it sort of makes me wonder, is, is are we gonna be seeing Alex again? And is there gonna be some sentience that Alex? Is she ever gonna speak to him or is she just there as an image in Kyle Rader's mind? Will we see more more of this construct or an AI version of how moving forward? It's it's interesting to see. That's just me speculating. Maybe it isn't, maybe this is a one-time occurrence, but I really thought that was great. And it's great to see Kyle Rayner again. And uh like full disclosure, I, I really got into Green Lantern. Kyle Rayner was my favorite Green Lantern, because there were you know, people gotta remember back in the day, it wasn't for Kyle Rayner saved the entire Green Lantern Corps. He's a torch bearer for a reason. There was a period of time where there was only one Green Lantern, and that was Kyle. And he's and it all flowed from him after that. So it was uh, I, I really love this. I really love this issue. Uh
0: so yeah, good stuff. Yeah, Kyle is beloved. Uh like the way Wally is, you know, Wally just he was the flash for for a lot of people, you know, for, for two decades. Kyle not quite as long, but yeah, he definitely for a lot of people uh is the Green Lantern. I'm sort of partial to Hal Jordan, um, because that was my first Green Lantern. Um, but I I I mean, I love Kyle as well. I could uh, give me Kyle and give me Hal. And you can have the like I don't care. (laughs) Like John Stewart, don't care. Guy Gardner, don't care. I don't mind um Simon Boz and Jessica Cruz, but yeah, there's plenty that I could I could lose. And I I wouldn't miss them. But anyway, that does it for the books that we're going to talk about in detail. There's also a Spanish version of uh, Blue Beetle out this week, uh, as there typically is uh, when that title drops. Also, in terms of collections this week, we've got uh, Detective Comics Volume 2, Gotham Nocturne hardcover. This is collecting the ROM-V series, Uh, specifically this series. Well, actually, it doesn't even say um, which issues it uh, it collects. So – uh, anyway, check that out if you're so inclined. It does look like it's uh, 10 issues, 100 pages, so uh, probably quite quite large. Uh, other uh, collections out this week, Night Terror's Dark Nightmares hardcover. Again, we weren't big fans of the Night Terror's event, so uh, buy that at your own risk. We also have Batman and Robin by Tomasi and Gleason, book one trade paperback. This collects the Batman and Robin New 52 series, Volume 1, Issues 20 through 22, and the uh, second volume of Batman and Robin, uh, Issues Number 0 through 14, and then we've got Batman the Adventure Continues Season 3, Trade Paperback, which uh, collects the Batman's comic book stories that are based on the uh, Batman the Animated Series. Uh, and this collects issues one through eight of uh of season three. So that does it for the collections that are out this week. Um I guess it's time for book of the week. Rocky, you have anything that uh stands out. Yeah, this was
1: uh this is a little bit challenging this week. Uh I'm going to uh, hmm. I really enjoyed, it. Uh, okay, I, I, I'm thinking in real time here, I, I really enjoyed Dream uh, Lantern. I was pleasantly surprised with uh, Sinners or Sons and Batman the Madness, I thought was, I really liked the ending on that. But, you know, I'm going to have to, and Batman 143 was so good in Action comics with the, with the Joker, but, you know, I... I chose Batman last week as my book of the week with Sardaski. So I'm going to go with Jason Aaron because I really like what he's doing with Superman and I want to give him props. So I would have to go with, uh I'm going to go with uh, Action Comics and I'll just bring it up here. Yeah, I'm going to go with Action Comics for my pick of the week. What about you?
0: Yeah, it's a, kind of tougher than uh, I thought it would be initially. You mentioned Sinister Sons. That's off to a great start. Uh, I, I really enjoyed Outsiders. This new Jenny Crisis is a really interesting character with a lot of potential. Wesley Dodd Sandman continues to be really good. Uh, action comics, like you mentioned, worthy. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with my boy Jeremy Adams and Green Lantern number eight, just based on the fact. And you kind of mentioned it based on the fact that, yeah, editorial, like, okay, you got to keep him on earth. Uh, and Jeremy's like, all right, fine. In the hands of a lesser writer, that might be, uh, you know, that might not work as well. Uh, but for Jeremy, it might be a challenge, but he's going to figure out a way to tell the story he wants to tell. And when it comes to a Green Lantern story, that's a cosmic story. And this feels big in scope. It feels epic. It feels cosmic. And Hal hasn't even been able to leave Earth yet. So that's fantastic. I'm really curious to see what's going to happen next. Uh, I, I just, he's, he's doing a fantastic job. I want to give him props. Plus the art is gorgeous. The color work is fantastic. Um, if I have any nitpick, it's relatively fast paced, and you know knowing jeremy it's he's trying to squeeze every bit of story he can in there um and i I don't know it's just one of those things that's so good I want more like I wish I had three or four more pages uh, per month of that title to uh to flesh out the story more, but uh that's just me being greedy. Uh, so anyway, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. I uh, hope you're checking out our daily Spawn over on the Comic Source YouTube channel or the Comic Source Audio Only channel. Uh, we're continuing with that. We just uh, you know, interviewed Todd McFarlane himself a few weeks ago. It was great to hear Todd. He came on and talked about uh, all the upcoming plans for Spawn this year. Issue 350 is coming. Uh, also, the first of the new series that were announced at uh, New York Comic-Con last year that are set in the Spawn Universe, Rat City, is going to be coming out real soon. Uh, I think Final Order Cutoff is March 18th, and the book is supposed to drop April 10th. Uh, we had a chance to talk to Erica Schultz, who's the writer for that series. It sounds so good. She was, she was so excited to talk about it. So look for that interview that's coming up soon. Uh, I mentioned spoke to Daryl Banks along with um, his co-writer for uh, the the project that's going on called Horror Show uh over at Kickstarter, which is uh a really, really fantastic uh story. I got a chance to read it and I I won't spoil it, but if you go and uh, and look at the cover, if you're familiar with movies from the early 80s, you you probably know what movie it kind of homages in uh or some of the characters kind of homage in, in a certain way. So that's written by Michael Katz and it's a really fun story. Go go check out that interview. Um and yeah, I think, I think that's it. I have some other interviews coming up, uh, soon, but, uh, but th- those are the ones that are, that'll be out this week. So appreciate the support as always. Don't forget to, uh, head over. If you're listening to us audio only, make sure you head over to Rocky's YouTube channel, uh, Comic Space Boom! Exclamation Um, comment on this video. Let us know what books you like this week us know uh you agree disagree with things we had to say we'd love to uh to engage with people in the comment section uh be sure you like and subscribe to the video and, and uh, ring that notification bell so you know when uh new content drops from Rocky. Uh any plans for any uh episodes coming up Rocky other than uh our regular DC spotlight I know you've been pretty busy lately so
1: right, yeah well I still want to do uh I still probably might do a quick review of Black Panther number one maybe with or without you maybe I also want to be I'm going to be reviewing Infernals number one, which is a really which is an image title that came out this week that I really like, quite like. It deals with the, the son of the devil and uh, is uh, the son of the devil is dying and, and he has to put Armageddon on hold. And uh, so the, the son of the devil has offspring that he has to recruit, uh, but he doesn't like his, his offspring, but he's dying of cancer and Armageddon's on hold. And it's actually an interesting premise. And so
0: that, I I'll review it. So, is that Rick, Rick Remender?
1: Uh, no, I don't believe it is. Like, I, Ed it's, Brubaker, it's, it's one of those guys. Uh, no, I, I, I have it. Just came, it's images with I, I, it's an it's new writers to me. I think Inferno, infernals, yeah.
0: good. Uh, <laughs> I thought there was one that w- that was coming out that sounds similar to what, like similar in title. I don't know that the I, I know what the premise is, um, but I thought it was coming out by somebody that I that I'd heard of before. Um, oh, that, okay. Inferno, it's Ryan Parrott. Uh, that's who it is. Yeah. So uh writer on Rogue Sun, did Mighty Morphin Power Rangers for a long time, did Dead Day at Aftershock. Yeah, he's, uh, I know Ryan. He's been on the show several times. So yeah, I, I definitely should check that out as well. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Uh, we appreciate the support as always. Don't forget to, to hit over and subscribe, as I mentioned. And uh, I guess that's going to do it. So thanks for the support and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the comic source podcast on Spotify, Apple podcast, Stitcher, Google play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five star reviews on Apple.